In the Great Lakes region of Canada, Ojibwe folklore tells an interesting little story of a hunting party camped along a river. The party had been traveling through the forest for several days now, and up to this point, their hunt had been rather unsuccessful. They had yet to make any kills, and furthermore, something very strange was happening. Each morning, when the party awoke, they would notice that some of their powder and shot was missing. But they couldn't explain why, as the rest of their supplies remained untouched, and nothing had been disturbing them whilst they were asleep. Yet, somehow, this happened several nights in a row, and they were beginning to worry that if it continued, they would run out of ammunition completely. So, one night, the hunters decided that they needed to put a stop to it. The party arranged to take turns staying awake, and keeping watch over their munition stock in hopes of catching the culprit behind the disappearing ammunition. That evening, around midnight, in the dim light of the dying fire, one of the hunters noticed a strange figure making its way through the entrance of their wigwam. It was very short, about three or four feet tall, and stout. The hunter watched as the little shadowy figure scampered across their shelter and made a beeline for the ammunition, where it began to quietly rummage through their supply. The confused hunter watched for a moment, but eventually decided that he had had enough of this mysterious intruder. So he made a noise, startling the little creature. It jumped, and then made a mad dash towards the exit. But the hunter, who was lying between the creature and the door, kicked its legs out from under it as it ran, knocking it to the ground, and then he blocked the exit. Knowing that it had been captured, the panicked creature hid under a blanket. As the story goes, the strange little creature refused to exit its hiding spot under the blanket unless the hunter promised to give it some of his supply of powder and shot. At first he was unwilling, but he wanted the creature to show itself so that he could see what exactly it was, and eventually his curiosity got the best of him. He reluctantly agreed, and the creature revealed its identity. It was a little human-like creature, a woman. She was short and stocky, and her entire face and body appeared to be covered in hair. After gathering her newly acquired ammunition, she made her way towards the exit. And as she did, she promised the hunters that from then on, good luck would attend them on their hunt. And then she disappeared into the night. As the story goes, from then on, the hunter's luck did turn around, and they had a very successful hunt. This strange creature was something known to the Ojibwe people as a Memeguasi. According to Ojibwe tradition, these mischievous little creatures are spirits that dwell along the riverbanks, and while they are generally harmless, they do seem to have a fondness for pranks and tomfoolery. They're known to steal things and occasionally capsize canoes. And if treated in a way that they deem to be unfair, the Memeguasi can also be very vengeful. This is Simply Strange, the podcast where anything spooky, weird, and goosebump-inducing is fair game.
Hello, and welcome to episode 19 of Simply Strange. I'm PJ, and I am thrilled that you were able to join me today. Thanks for stopping by. My apologies for this one being a day late getting released. It's been a really busy week, and this episode ended up being a little bit longer than I had initially planned for it to be, and just didn't quite get done in time. But we're here now, and let's go ahead and get into it. We're going to be staying in Canada this week, so buckle up. This is the Baldoon Mystery. In 1804, the first settlers arrived in Baldoon. They consisted of 15 families who had left Scotland and made the grueling journey to the New World in hopes of starting new lives. However, their new settlement was unfortunately doomed from the start. The land that they selected was nestled along the River Sny, between Lake Erie and Lake Huron, in the Great Lakes region of southern Ontario, a few miles from the U.S.-Canada border. It was a desolate region, made up mostly of marsh and forest, and it was on a low-lying floodplain. And too often, the rivers of the Sny would overstep their boundaries and flood the flat, grassy expanses that made up this new settlement. This made land difficult for the settlers to work, and the wet, rotting vegetation encouraged the spread of disease, namely malaria and dysentery. Within the first year, 42 of the original settlers died. And their troubles continued when, during the War of 1812, the American militia invaded their settlement, stealing much of their livestock and deepening the depression that the ailing settlers found themselves in. By 1818, the settlement was deemed to be a complete failure, and most of its inhabitants moved away, seeking refuge from the swamps in higher land further inland. Some of them started a new settlement just a few short miles away, a settlement that would eventually grow into what today is the town of Wallaceburg, Ontario. But others, like the family of Daniel MacDonald, chose to continue living near the site of the original Baldoon settlement. Daniel had, years ago, built a sturdy, two-story frame house on the sodden banks of the Sny River, a short ways west of the more populated portions of the Baldoon settlement. And when everyone left, he and his family stayed. It was an isolated, heavily forested area, with no roads, no modern conveniences, and now, no neighbors, not nearby anyway. It was cut off from the world, a place where Daniel and his family had to fend for themselves and depended on their own resources for survival. It was a life that the McDonald's seemed well suited for. For years, they lived off of the land and made an honest life for themselves. You could even say that they prospered. Eventually, Daniel's son, John, got married and built his own house nearby so that he and his wife could begin to start their own family. Like his father, John McDonald was a hardworking, respectable man who was quite content with his simple life of farming along the river. 
he and his wife were happy, and soon their home began to fill with children. But there was trouble brewing, and beginning in 1829, their life of uneventful peace was about to be turned upside down. One bright summer's morning in 1829, the men went off to the farm to work the field for the day, while the women headed to the barn to pick and prepare the straw for their day's work. The barn filled with chatter and laughter as they went about their work, enjoying the beautiful summer's day and each other's company. Until, that is, they were startled out of their carefree state by a sudden and unexpected disturbance. A support pole, holding up the loft above them, suddenly came crashing down and landed on the ground right in the center of the group. The startled women were somewhat surprised by the occurrence, but assumed it to be a natural, explainable event. Perhaps the beam was loose. So they moved it aside, and they continued their work. But it didn't last long, because only a few short moments later, Another pole fell from above them, again falling on the ground right in the area where the women were working. Now they were a little more alert, and no longer wholly convinced that this was just a coincidence. The women initiated a thorough search of the barn, inspecting the remaining poles and searching the loft for some hint as to what had caused the supports to fail. But they found nothing, and eventually the frightened group calmed down and went back to work. A few hours passed and the women's merry banter returned as the mood slowly lifted and eventually the strange occurrences were all but forgotten. Then, just as suddenly as the first two times, a third support pole came crashing to the ground, shattering the peaceful tranquility below and thoroughly frightening all of the women. This time, they had had enough. The group wasted no time investigating the scene and instead fled the barn running to the apparent safety of their house. Somehow, the bright, sunny day now seemed much gloomier, and the panicked women struggled to console each other as they attempted to move past the unsettling experience that they had just had in the barn. Tensions remained high, but there was still work to be done in the house, so they refocused their attention and soon became absorbed by their work. Until they were again interrupted, this time by the sound of breaking glass as a small hole was suddenly bored through one of the house's windows, and a split second later, a lead bullet rolled across the floor and came to a stop at their feet. Initially, the women reacted with anger, thinking that a careless hunter had sent an errant bullet flying through their window. The angry women yelled their displeasure out the busted window, berating the unseen huntsman that he could easily have killed one of them. But they received no response, not a verbal one anyway. Instead, their admonishments were met with a second bullet, again flying through the window, followed a moment later by another, and another, and another. 
The women dropped to the ground as the onslaught continued. Each bullet would come bursting through the window at a high speed, as if fired from a gun. However, there were no gunshot blasts to be heard. And then, the bullet would slow to a stop, and it would fall harmlessly upon the ground. The confused and terrified women crawled to the door and then fled from the home as fast as their legs would carry them, not stopping until they reached the safety of a neighbor's house a short while up the river. Following this event, the McDonald family gained some local notoriety as the family that had magical bullets launching through their window. And this was only the beginning. Soon, the ghostly bullets returned, becoming an almost daily occurrence and breaking almost every window in the house, until finally, John McDonald had had enough. He boarded up all of the windows in an attempt to deflect the bullets. But his efforts, it turns out, were in vain. The bullets continued, only now they would simply pass through the boards, leaving them completely untouched, before falling harmlessly to the floor. Before too long, the bullets began to be accompanied by stones as well, that would fly through the windows in much the same way. And the stones and bullets were not the only oddity that the family was subjected to. Soon, they began to hear a bizarre marching sound in the kitchen at night like an infantry squad methodically tramping back and forth across the house. Almost every night, the terrified family would be kept awake by the bizarre sound of the ghostly footsteps, and each time they would investigate the sound, they would find nothing. As time went on, word continued to spread of the bizarre string of occurrences in the McDonald household. Visitors from far and wide would swing by the house to witness the mischief firsthand and often they were able to. One day, a man by the name of Neil Campbell stopped by and was struck in the chest by a rock as it was launched through the window. Curious, he picked it up and threw it back into the river Sny, only to have the same rock thrown back at him a few short moments later. There is also an incident in which John McDonald's infant child began crying inconsolably in its cradle. In an attempt to quiet the child, John lifted it out of the bed and found underneath the child a scorching hot stone. John threw the stone in the river behind the house and noted with wonder that the stone was so hot that the water sizzled when the stone hit it. And then, minutes later, this stone too was unexplainably thrown back into the house. As visitors continued to pour in, more and more anomalies of different varieties began to be reported. Apparitions were seen throughout the house. Dishes would float above the table. The tongs and shovel would rattle and bang against each other in the hearth. Spontaneous fires would break out throughout the house. Furniture would move and fall over. Household items like soap would throw themselves across the home, sometimes striking people. And at one point it was even reported that a 10 inch long knife launched itself at a window and embedded itself into the frame. And these events only scratched the surface of the bizarre occurrences that plagued the McDonald family during this time. Over the coming years, the unseen nuisance would torment them in too many ways to count. The flying objects and strange sounds were only the beginning. And as time went on, the anomalies began to grow more sinister and sometimes dangerous. The McDonald family home was a ticking time bomb. Each day was worse than the one before, 
and it was growing increasingly clear to the people of the region that soon something was going to break. And that is exactly what happened. On one seemingly pleasant morning, the McDonald family sat at home, eating breakfast. It had been a good morning, quiet, and they managed to spend some time eating in peace, undisturbed by any flying rocks or levitating plates, which was a rare luxury these days. But as the McDonald's were wrapping up their meal, they noticed something that shattered their peaceful morning. A hissing sound that was growing louder and louder. It seemed to be coming from the roof. So John, fearing the worst, rushed outside to assess the disturbance. He ran out the front door and looked up at the roof of their home, only to see that it had burst into flame and was billowing a dark smoke that already was rising through the trees high above them. His beloved home, built by his own hands, was engulfed in a raging inferno. A quick glance confirmed that his barn, too, was suffering the same dramatic fate. There would be no saving either of them. John rushed his family out of the home and sought refuge in his father, Daniel McDonald's home, across the way, where they could do nothing but watch as their beloved home, as well as the barn, both burned to the ground. They lost everything in the fire. With nowhere to go and all of their belongings destroyed, the McDonald's were forced to rely on the goodwill of their community for food and shelter, seeking refuge with anyone who would have them. But the problem was, the strange annoyances followed them wherever they went, and each time, their host would grow terrified that their home, too, would meet the same disastrous end as the McDonald's home. After several failed attempts at settling into various temporary homes, the family eventually found themselves almost right back where they started, when they moved into the home of John's father. For a while, things started to look better, the McDonald family home again began to fill with the sounds of joy and laughter as they began to feel a glimmer of hope that perhaps the worst was behind them. But as you probably guessed, it wasn't, and the strange events would soon continue. It started again one day when Mrs. McDonald and a young visiting relative were wrapping up some work in the garden, when they discovered a cute little black dog basking in the sun on the doorstep of their house. Curious and happy to see the little dog, the young relative approached it, hoping to keep it until they could find the dog's owner. But the playful little dog had other ideas. It leapt up and it rushed around the corner of the house, disappearing behind it. The girl ran after it and peeked around the edge of the house into the backyard, only to discover that the dog was nowhere to be seen. The surprised girl called for it, but she was met with silence, so she made a disappointed march back towards the garden, where Mrs. McDonald remained, waiting for her. But as she was walking, a movement on the roof of the house caught her eye. She looked up and saw the little black dog on top of the house peering down at her from over the gutters. Now, this house was two stories tall, and there was no way that the dog should have been able to reach the roof. Yet, there it was, and neither she nor Mrs. McDonald could conceive any explanation as to how. Over the coming months, the dog would continue to appear, and the other, more routine annoyances would return as well. Furniture moved, the strange tramping sound continued, 
bullets broke through the upstairs windows, stones were flung into the house, unexplainable fires broke out throughout the house, and soon, worst of all, their livestock began to get violently ill and eventually die. Now, there is one thing that needs to be mentioned regarding this case. Many of the details describing the intricacies of the anomalies that we've covered come from a book written by Neil MacDonald in 1871. Neil was John MacDonald's son and witnessed the events firsthand, but he was only about five years old at the time the reported events occurred. So he alone may not be the best source. That being said, he does include the testimonials of 26 people, friends, family, neighbors, who all witnessed the various oddities around the McDonald family home. The flying bullets and rocks, the moving furniture, the spontaneous fires. But these two should probably be taken with a grain of salt, because for the most part, these statements were almost all recorded upwards of 40 years after the events had occurred. While there is surely some accuracy to them, there's also a fair chance that perhaps some of the details of the story may have been slightly embellished over the years. Now, that being said, with so many accounts to be had, it also seems fair to say that something strange surely happened at the McDonald home in 1829. It's just a question of what. Interestingly enough, the local Ojibwe people are familiar with these events as well, and they have their own idea of what caused the disturbances. As the stories go, the bank of the River Snai that the McDonald family constructed their home upon just so happened to be the home of a group of mischievous little Maymayguasi. And when John McDonald built his home on the river bank there, it forced the hairy little creatures to move into a nearby poplar forest, where they resided and lived peacefully alongside the McDonald's. Until, that is, one day when John cleared out the forest and turned it into a field. The creatures, now furious by the unfair treatment, set out for revenge, and all of the subsequent anomalies were the result of the frustrated creatures' attempts to drive the McDonald's away in hopes of regaining control of their home. And following the fire that decimated the McDonald family home, it would seem that they had succeeded. But according to Neil MacDonald's account of the story, the source of their troubles was eventually determined to have come from elsewhere. As Neil's story goes, the land that John MacDonald had purchased to build his home on had been pursued by someone else. A family who lived a short ways away referred to only as the people in the long, low log house. This family, consisting of an elderly woman, her two adult sons, and one daughter, were viewed with disdain by all who knew them. They lived in isolation, rarely leaving their home, and when they did, they were known to be rather unpleasant people, sullen, resentful, and unfriendly. There were even rumors that the old woman was a witch. 
and this woman wanted the McDonald's land. In fact, she made several offers to buy it from the family, all of which were refused by John McDonald. And so the McDonald family carried on with their lives, giving little thought to the strange and unpleasant woman in the long, low log house. The early 1800s were a time of great superstition, and the McDonald family was willing to entertain virtually any idea as to what the cause of all of these annoyances was, from the mundane to the supernatural and outrageous. And they were also willing to entertain just about any solution. As time went on, the family pursued every avenue that presented itself to them, always seeking relief from the terrifying events plaguing and destroying their home. Eventually, word of the events made its way to the authorities in Toronto, who, fearing that the events would further propagate superstition, paid the McDonald family a visit while they were living in the home of Daniel McDonald, in hopes of putting a stop to the madness. They sent the family away for a brief period while they examined the home, and what they found baffled them completely. Everywhere they turned, fires would materialize out of nowhere, smoke would come billowing out of a closet, and the confused men would extinguish the flames, only to notice that more smoke had begun emanating from elsewhere in the home, only seconds later. This continued until the confused men eventually departed, having completely failed to disprove the superstitions of the people of Baldoon. The family also sought the aid of a respected friend and local schoolteacher, who also happened to have a working knowledge of witchcraft, a man named Robert Barker. Robert spent a great deal of time at the home, experiencing most of the phenomena firsthand, and ultimately became convinced that the events were being caused by supernatural agencies. He nailed a placard to the front door of Daniel McDonald's home that read, I command you, troublesome spirit, to leave this house, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But unfortunately, his attempted exorcism had no effect, and a short while later, he was actually arrested for practicing witchcraft. The family also sought the aid of the church, as well as a roving First Nations medicine man, both of whom were every bit as unsuccessful at driving away the anomalies as those who had preceded them. Nothing was working, and the unfortunate McDonald family was growing more hopeless and more terrified with every day that passed. And it was around this time that another option presented itself, when a local reverend approached John McDonald and claimed that he knew of a man, a doctor, in another town who had a strange daughter, gifted with second sight and the power of stone reading. He believed that she could possibly help uncover the source of their torments, and possibly even put a stop to it all. While the Reverend was hesitant to take the leap into the supernatural, he understood that the McDonald family's options were growing thin, and he agreed to accompany the excited John McDonald to the girl, some 80 miles away. And so, they gathered the necessary supplies, and they set off.
The journey alone was no small task. Most of the trail was made up of rarely used paths, winding through miles and miles of murky marshes and dense forests, with little evidence of any human habitation. But after four long days of travel through the inhospitable wilderness, the pair arrived at the doctor's home, where they were introduced to the reason for their journey, his daughter. The 13-year-old girl was described as striking with a sallow and unwholesome complexion. She had a thin, fragile form and strange eyes that always seemed to be gazing off into the distance. She confirmed word of her abilities to be true, but spoke of them with a casual disinterest, as though this was all very routine to her. She explained to them that the use of her second sight was mentally draining and caused her a sharp and intense agony, something that she did not subject herself to lightly. It was a hidden power that she would only use under extreme circumstances, and it was up to John McDonald to convince her that his situation met her standards. So he explained everything, and fortunately managed to win her over. The mysterious girl asked him if the family had had any trouble with their land, to which he responded that he did, in fact, have another family who very much wished to purchase the land from them, but that he refused to sell. The girl then gave a very detailed and accurate description of each person in the long, low log house, putting special focus on the old woman. The seemingly impossible description of a group of people who the girl had never met left Mr. McDonald stunned and amazed. And then she asked him if he had ever seen a strange stray goose mingling amongst his flock. After a moment of reflection, John McDonald responded that yes, he had seen such a goose, and that he had once even gone so far as to shoot at it, but that his bullet had slipped by it with no effect. The girl nodded her head and explained to John that no normal lead bullet would ever hurt the goose. She explained that this goose was his enemy in disguise. It was the woman in the long, low log house, and that the only way to destroy her would be to mold a silver bullet, which he must shoot the goose with, and that only by doing this could he destroy his enemy. Then, she returned to her quarters leaving the pair of eager, excited men to return to Baldoon to destroy the cursed goose. Several mornings later, upon his return home, John began his preparations. Early one morning, just as the sun was beginning to peek over the trees to the east, John set to work smelting a silver bullet. When he was satisfied with his work, he sat down to an unusually cheerful breakfast with his family. Then, he loaded his gun with the silver bullet and he set out to find the goose. Sure enough, before too long, he stumbled upon the creature, bobbing aimlessly along the river a short walk from the McDonald home. The goose was just as he remembered it, with a dark, almost black head, and a pair of long, dark feathers on either wing. It was a strange, sinister-looking creature that stood out from any other goose he had ever seen. John was certain that this was his target, so he took aim and fired. The bird let out a strange, human-sounding cry. John's shot met its target, but only the wing of the goose, which struggled its way into the marsh along the river's edge 
and disappeared from sight. However, this was of no concern to John, because he knew exactly where the goose was going. The long, low log house stood not far away, along the edge of the foul marsh. John also knew that if his family were to be free of the curse, he had to ensure that the job was done correctly. So he set off into the marsh towards his enemy's home, where he discovered the old woman slumped down on the ground with a severely injured arm. She was grimacing with agony and muttering a long string of words under her breath. What exactly, John did not dare to guess. But upon seeing the injured woman, he knew that he had accomplished his task. The curse was finally broken, and at last, his family was free. Everything that they needed to be happy was at their fingertips. Bountiful land, a flowing river, and lush forest. Yet, for so long, the family lived under constant threat of their home burning down and their animals dropping dead. But not anymore. From that day forward, the McDonald family's troubles were over, and they were finally able to rebuild their home and their lives. They were free from the curse placed upon them by the woman in the long, low log house. Alright, well, everyone, that's a wrap for this week's episode. Thank you so much for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, Simply Strange is on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, but I don't really use Facebook that much. I try to stay pretty active on Twitter and Instagram, though, so be sure to follow the show on any of those for all kinds of exciting updates and pictures and tweets and such. And you're probably sick of hearing me say it by now, but I'm going to say it again anyway. I'm always looking for new people to come check out the show. So if you happen to know anyone who likes weird stuff like witch geese and haunted rocks, tell them about Simply Strange. I love it when new people find the show. And word of mouth is a pretty good way to make that happen. And finally... I'd like to extend a huge thank you to Victoria K, our newest supporter over on Patreon. Thank you so much. Your support means a lot, and I really do appreciate it. If anyone else would like to help keep the lights on over here, feel free to check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash simplystrange. I'll pop that link into the description as well. And that's it. Show's over, folks. Get out of here. Go home. See you in two weeks. And thank you for listening.